uh, it's kind of like an intimidating thing or a scary thing if someone says, oh, like my therapist loves me. Oh God, what does that mean? Does that mean there's a sexual, you know, um, entanglement there? Does that mean that there are porous boundaries? I mean. I think as a species, we're, we're still developing our capacity to love um, in terms of like taking care of oneself, having boundaries, taking care of each other, but uh, we're not quite there yet. Welcome to the Mindfulness Experience Podcast, an official podcast for the Psychedelic Science Convention 2023 happening in Denver, Colorado from June 19th through the 23rd. My name is Keith Fiveson. On this podcast, I'm thrilled to introduce you to Dr. Adele LaFrance, a clinical psychologist, research scientist, author, and developer of emotion-focused treatment modalities. Adele is active in the research and practice of psychedelic medicine with a focus on ayahuasca, MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. Adele is the strategy lead for the MAPS-sponsored study of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for eating disorders and clinical trainer and supervisor for Imperial College Center for Psychedelic Research. Dr. LaFrance is particularly interested in the mechanisms and healing modalities, including emotion processing, spirituality, love, and family-based psychedelic medicine. I really love this conversation with Adele. We explored her projects, including The Love Project. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Adele LaFrance. Hi. Oh, I am so pleased to have you, Adele. Dr. Adele LaFrance here. Uh, it's really a pleasure to have you on the Mindfulness uh, Experience podcast. As you know, we're um, an official podcast for the MAPS Psychedelic Science mm -hmm. Convention, and you are going to be one of the uh, speakers there as a therapist researcher in the field of psychedelic assisted therapy. And, uh, you know, it's it's very exciting. I know you're doing a lot of work, uh, not only one-on-one uh, -on -one work, but more group work as well. Uh, so uh, can you... Uh, Tell me, what can we expect from uh, the convention uh, and your sessions? You have, you said you have about three sessions there, right? I do. Yes, I do. I'm, I'm really excited to be able to share some data um, for three studies that I am a part of. Um, mm. The first study is looking at uh, eating disorder symptoms in a sample of people who participated in MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. Mm -hmm. And so we'll be reporting on some findings um, that were not specifically to PT related to PTSD symptoms, but actually eating disorder symptoms. Mm. And I'm hoping that's going to be um, some, some exciting findings for the field of eating disorders because there's so mm -hmm. much overlap in those who struggle with eating disorders, you know, in terms of having trauma history. Um, the other study that I'll be presenting on is uh, related to family matters in psychedelic therapy. So uh, the role of the family, how we can engage family members to optimize outcomes, but also mm -hmm. to potentially minimize uh, distress on the system. Mm -hmm. And so we'll be drawing from uh, 
couple of different research studies that I've been a part of over the years, my colleagues and I. Mm -hmm. And then the last study that I'll be presenting on, and probably the one that I'm the most excited about, is called the Love Project. Oh. And <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun because, you know, uh, so many people talk about psychedelic experiences anecdotally in terms of like profound experiences of mm -hmm. love, of mm -hmm. unity. Mm -hmm. And yet in the research community, we have yet to study this concept of love. And so um, colleagues and I put together a survey study for individuals who have had profound experiences of love in the hopes that we can begin the conversation or at least an attempt to define what that means and even um, learn more about how these experiences of love that are engendered in the context of a psychedelic experience mm -hmm. can lead to positive outcomes for self, uh, for other as well. The love project. I love yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> great. That's absolutely wonderful. And the beautiful thing about it, of course, is that just in terms of the other two studies that you're doing, it seems to me that, you know, I mean, it's, 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 been used again and again love is the answer love is everything it's the ineffable it's the sense of our mm -hmm. interconnection with everyone and everything it's the expansion you know and 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 fear and uncertainty and doubt are the contraction right so you know when you look at these projects i mean i i, I we can unpack them you know um give me a sense in terms of you you're so excited about the love project um, how does it interconnect with, or does it interconnect with, in your view, you know, with the other projects? Because, you know, whether or not it's an eating disorder of not having mm -hmm. enough, not it not being enough, or, you know, mm -hmm. not, not, not wanting or not, not whether or not it's purging or binging, right? Or mm -hmm. uh, whether or not it's family matters. You know, I think of Dick Schwartz, I think of IFS. I think of the, I think of the parts and the interconnection of the parts, taking the exiled part and bringing it back with love and compassion and care. You know, mm -hmm. so give me a sense from your view, uh, you know, it, how is how are they connected and you're involved with all three of them? Yeah, I feel like um, as a field, mm -hmm. we are not immune to the stigma related to love. Love has historically been seen as unprofessional, as um, unscientific. Um, if we look back in the history of uh, psychotherapy, mm -hmm. Carl Rogers coined the term unconditional positive regard, you know, as a primary mm -hmm. tool for transformation in psychotherapy. And at that time, he was, you know, considered a revolutionary and also very controversial because there was a much stronger focus on um, behavioral interventions or psychoanalytic interventions. Mm -hmm. And so he comes in and talks about unconditional positive regard. Well, mm -hmm. what I think he was actually talking about love, but he just couldn't go that far at that time. <laughs> it would have been way too right. risky. Right. And so I feel like now as our culture is maturing, and that we've been so informed mm. by psychedelics, mm. not just it, at this time, but in the first revolution, mm -hmm. um, I feel like it's time for the psychotherapeutic community, the medical community to talk about one of the most potent healing forces, and that is love. And we see that because, mm -hmm. well, gosh, it's everywhere. But one of the one of the reasons why people suffer and develop you know, mental health issues relates to their early experiences around love. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that they heal is through, 
you know, current experiences of love. And I think about, you know, Bruce and Marcela, who've done so many of the, who, who've uh, been such a huge part of the MDMA study for PTSD. And they really talk about so clearly the role of the love between the therapist and the client as a mm -hmm. healing tool, but we, we haven't yet talked about it explicitly we're not researching hmm. you know this this topic um and i feel like it's time so i'm excited to be able to do that with uh, some of my closest friends and colleagues mm -hmm. isn't that funny though uh unconditional um positive regard <laughs> that you know mm -hmm. we have to sanitize it like mm -hmm. love like when when you know how, how would love be a a bad word you know except it, well, it's a little gooey it's not patriarchal it right not sanitized you know it's not tough and rough and you know scientific right i mean so is that your is that yeah why? well there that's definitely a part of it um but the other piece though is that and that's becoming more and more of a part of the conversation today many people have been hurt under the guise hmm. of love hmm. um in, in including in healing environments, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that if there is a resistance to mm -hmm. the word love, mm -hmm. that um, there are some social, historical, oppressive mm -hmm. uh, influences that have shaped that. And also there are ways in which um, doctors and psychotherapists have Mm -hmm. abuse their power and hurt people in mm. the name in the name of love you know so uh it's kind of like an intimidating thing or a scary thing if someone says oh like my therapist loves me oh god what does that mean does that mean there's a sexual mm -hmm. you know um entanglement there does that mean that there are porous boundaries i mean mm -hmm. i think as a species we're we're still developing our capacity to love mm -hmm. um, in terms of like taking care of oneself, having boundaries, taking mm -hmm. care of each other, but uh, we're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. That is so profound. You know, I, I, I think about it and I think of, you know, agape, phile and mm -hmm. eros as the sort of context for love. Right. And within the, as you say, within the community, because, you know, psychedelics do break the boundaries for, you know, individuals and they really just want to love everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, within the, within that context, that can be a very slippery slope. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I do believe that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, um, rigor, uh, to make sure that those boundaries are in place and that, uh, everyone stays in their lane. That's right. That's right. And I'm really excited to see, you know, uh, in the context of this study, how many people felt that the love that they experienced between themselves and the guide, mm. you know, was of critical importance. But I'm, we also have a sub-study or a subset of the study questions specifically geared for guides, mm -hmm. uh, therapists who've been involved in this kind of work. And we asked them as well, like, um, how much training they've mm. received in terms of navigating situations uh, that come up in the work mm. that mm. specifically relate to love, including mm -hmm. um, feelings like uh, of sexual attraction. So mm -hmm. I think that we have a, a long way to go. Um, and, it, and that's not, which is great. You know, we're just, we're just getting started in some ways, you know, mm -hmm. as this, this, uh, this renewal um, to, to equip mm -hmm 
guides, whether they are formal or informal, mm -hmm. to be able to um, create and maintain a container mm -hmm. where um, complications mm -hmm. related to love can emerge and get sorted out. Yeah, and and that sort of uh, gets into the uh, discussion in terms of preparation, in terms mm -hmm. of therapeutic touch, in terms of presencing, you know, therapeutic presencing, and the whole idea of really having that presence for the individual, which really you know shows them that you're there for them, right? That's you know, right. It's not, it's not just uh, you know touch touch isn't the answer to everything, but it can be a reassuring answer and uh, it can get very confusing for folks so that's right mm -hmm. yeah so let me ask you can you share a brief overview of your work uh, overall and uh you know specifically how is it being used to treat you know mental health uh, disorders and mm -hmm. you know uh, uh, where does where, where where does it go i mean the you know the from the micro to macro view i think we've talked about individual one-on-ones but then we also talked about the group settings and how do they differ from your view um well this research that i've been involved in thus far i would say primarily centers around um, developing treatment programs or protocols or uh, ideas for people who have eating disorders. And mm -hmm. so um, eating disorders have the highest mortality rates of mm -hmm. all psychiatric conditions. Mm -hmm. And anorexia nervosa in particular um, is the disorder where there are the fewest options. Um, and so uh, when I first started off as a psychologist, my first job was in an eating disorder program. And since then, it's been, I don't know, 15 years, that's been, that's always been a part of my work because um, there are so few options and there are so many families who, despite everyone's best efforts, including clinical clinicians, um, are not able to um, support the person who's affected by the illness to recover, you know? And so um, when Tim Brewerton and I and colleagues were looking at the PTSD data, we really wanted to see, you know, what was going on with, with respect to eating symptoms mm. um, in, in the hopes that MDMA could uh, prove to be a fertile ground for the exploration of, of treatment options for people with eating disorders. Likewise, the study that I'm affiliated with, um, with Imperials, looking at psilocybin-assisted therapy for anorexia nervosa, and I think that's going to be a really promising mm -hmm. uh, a treatment option for some people. Um, and in the past, I've also looked at uh, ketamine, and mm -hmm. I've uh, conducted a number of uh, studies looking at the potential for ayahuasca. Mm. And I guess, generally speaking, I would say that we're so far away from being able to tell like which mm -hmm. substance is the best for which eating disorder. Mm -hmm. I think that um, my I feel like we have a responsibility to explore as many options as possible so that mm -hmm. uh, individuals have agency, have choice and and can figure out like based on their expression of illness or their inner world, you know what mm -hmm. what substance what medicine might be might be best for them but yeah so that's my goal is really just to help move that along mm -hmm. um so that the next generations of, of researchers and clinicians can start answering more of the fine-tuned questions mm -hmm. um but that before i retire that there are 
many, many more options for people struggling with eating disorders and their families as well. Now, I, 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 I chuckle a little bit when you say before I retire, because I you're, you're, you're a young woman and you've been doing this for 15 years. I mean, I'm 44, so I don't before, know. Well, well yeah, <laughs> you, are, you are, you are a young woman. I have, <laughs> I have news for you. Uh, being a, being an older man, I consider you to be a young woman. Uh, let me ask you, uh, though, uh, because this is a, a very serious topic, specifically mm-hmm. when we look at anorexia, right? The whole right. area of uh, looking at it over the last 15 years and then looking at it also as we start to move more and more into an, a sort of an, an attention deficit disorder culture that really does a lot of compare despair. I'm wondering from your view, has it gotten worse? Is it getting better? What are the what are the symptoms around that and how does that how does that how does that play certainly within i one of the beautiful things about research is you get to use substances that aren't quite legal yet right and you know mm-hmm. I, we do know ketamine is legal in many of the states mm-hmm. uh, certainly psilocybin within colorado we just uh, saw the proposition mm-hmm. and in or uh, in uh, oregon as well but i'm just wondering from your view um has has this problem gotten worse or is it better or what 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 do you think the causes are as well? I think when it comes to uh, mental disorders, I think COVID played a, a significant role in mm. amplifying the need for support mm. um, across a variety of clinical conditions, but also just garden variety stress and distress. Mm-hmm. And um, but with with anorexia in particular, I don't even think that we need to. Th- consider is it worse is it bad? like it's 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 been urgent for a long time mm-hmm. and it continues to be urgent mm-hmm. um especially now that um there are options for people or for medically assisted dying for mental mm-hmm. health related conditions you know and people with uh, anorexia nervosa for example are opting mm-hmm. for that kind of um intervention because they've exhausted all legal interventions, you know, and and they don't want to live like this. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> there's a lot of conversation in the eating disorder community about like, is this right? Is it not mm-hmm. right? And I see such a huge role for psychedelics mm-hmm. to play in that conversation. I mean, and the National Post, uh, I think it was this week or last week, mm-hmm. there was an article that came through about a woman who was considering medically assisted dying. Mm-hmm. And then she tried ketamine and she mm-hmm. no longer is pursuing Changed that mind, option. Yeah. Exactly. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I feel, I feel like it's going to be imperative mm-hmm. for us to offer options to individuals mm-hmm. who are really in despair Mm-hmm. And and in despair in part because they have tried everything mm-hmm. that's currently available to them and it's not working. So mm-hmm. I really, really want us to push hard to uh, create safe, mm-hmm. ethical mm-hmm. Um, options, especially for people who are um, at a later stage of uh, of illness expression. Mm-hmm. This seems like a problem of abundance in some respect, and I'm, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm, not to put my judgment hat on here, but I can't help but wonder if this is more of a Western issue than a, a problem, you know, that might be experienced. Let's say whether or not it's in China or India or somewhere else mm. in the, in the East. Uh, do you have mm. a sense of that comparatively? 
I don't recall the the exact data. I do know though that eating disorders affect people of different cultures mm -hmm. and I believe that there is a higher representation of eating disorders mm -hmm. in North America for example, mm -hmm. but that could be related to a whole host of reasons, mm -hmm. um, including people's interest in tracking this kind mm -hmm. of data. Mm -hmm. um, but when when people uh, develop eating disorders, it, it's usually a very complex interplay of factors, including uh, genetic factors, including temperament type factors, neurobiology. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's um, uh, what happened to them in their life and how sufficient they feel resourced internally. And, but one of the biggest aha moments from my research with ayahuasca mm -hmm. is that our current conceptualization of the development of eating disorders is extremely limited mm -hmm. and really does not paint the whole picture to the point where it can be harmful. Um, like mm -hmm. when I thought, think about when I used to write like uh, case summaries after I've done assessments, I was like, okay, well, um, uh, difficult pregnancy, uh, difficulty with breastfeeding, um, um, uh, parent uh, was absent for a period of time, some bullying and gymnastics coach who said the wrong thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that would be like, okay, so th then that's what happened. Mm -hmm. But when I, when I and my colleagues took the time to interview you know, um, many different people who'd experienced, who'd had eating disorders and who'd worked with ayahuasca as a healing, as a mm -hmm. healing tool. I mean, people were talking about how they saw in their journeys that the pain that was fueling the eating disorder mm. was three generations back, you know, or two generations back, or that there were some transpersonal factors mm -hmm. that influenced the expression of mm -hmm. their stress or distress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like going back into my my clinical folders and, you know, like revise, resubmit <laughs> every single one of my conceptualizations because it's it's like too narrow a focus on the person and their family. When mm -hmm. what we're talking about here potentially is so it's, it's, it's so much more complex mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. there's no one person or system who's mm -hmm. like to blame, you know, it's mm -hmm. it's it's like what World War II did to your family mm. or it's what um, the residential schools did to your family. You know, like I feel like that's what we need to be looking at instead of just like, hey, what happened in your life in the last 18 mm. years mm. or 30 mm. years, etc. Mm. I feel like you've just opened up a wormhole here that I want to mm -hmm. jump into, uh, you know, from from the viewpoint of the transpersonal mm -hmm. and a really understanding of the interconnectedness, the spiritual mm -hmm. aspects of our own beingness and our uh, ability to nourish, to flourish, to grow. Right. And then the epigenetic issues where mm -hmm. that we've been handed down from generational or intergenerational trauma, perhaps, mm -hmm. you know, so uh, when we start to look at the psychedelic journey, uh, whether or not it's the individual journey or the group journey, how does that, how does the journey itself help the individual to open up to these issues, these transpersonal issues, these epigenetic issues. And, you know, what do you think that's about? Let's, let's jump down that wormhole if you're okay with that. 
Yeah, I mean, gosh, there's so many ways that we can describe it, very scientific terms mm -hmm. or um, more like experimental terms. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about MDMA, for example, it's associated with all kinds of um, psychopharmacological effects that increase openness, you know, that increase capacity to dig into inner material to engage with the therapist or the guide in a way that could be, you know, very healing. And then there are, there's the possibility of visionary states, you know, with uh, some of the more classic psychedelics, including ayahuasca, where you can, you have opportunity to learn about what happened the generation before you or two generations before. And, and that kind of understanding of oneself can make a huge, huge difference. And I'm happy to give a personal example. Um, I struggled with nicotine addiction early mm. in my life. <clears throat> and it's always it's the been hardest. That's the hardest. Oh my God. It's goodness. a really tough one. Yeah, it's tough. It's a really, really tough one. And so I have this vulnerability to um, nicotine addiction and I've, mm -hmm. I've worked on it myself, you know, with my own uh, personal work uh, with an ayahuasca specifically. And in one, um, in one of my um, journeys, I got to see the degree to which my grandmother was an oppressed woman. You know, mm -hmm. she wasn't allowed to work. She didn't have, she didn't go to school for, I don't know, she didn't finish elementary school, I don't think. Um, she didn't have a driver's license. She wasn't allowed to have money, mm -hmm. you know, so she had lived such a small life. And mm -hmm. I remember spending time with her and she chain smoked, you know, mm -hmm. and what I understood from the medicine was that the nicotine saved her mm. from the insanity of, of such a small life. Self-soothing. And so, yeah, it was like, it was, I would say it was more than self-soothing. It, it saved her from, <clears throat> you know, like mm -hmm. maybe even wanting to end her own life. Mm. And so what happened, what, what I saw was that nicotine ended up being coded into her dna as a medicine mm -hmm. that protected her from a far worse outcome and so by the time i came along my dna was telling me mm. nicotine is a medicine mm. it helps it really helps it can save you you know mm -hmm. and so um when people even talk about addiction i'm thinking okay the substance of choice did it ever play a role in their family's lineage mm -hmm. in terms of protecting them from from a mind split or you know really challenging conditions and so when i had that did that renewed conceptualization of my own relationships with addiction mm -hmm. or with nicotine rather um it changed it changed so much for me i had so much more compassion for for my grandmother for my mother for myself and then I was able to work towards renegotiating that that under, my body's understanding of the role that nicotine could play in my life, you know. Beautiful, beautiful. It reminds me of, you know, the opportunity that the medicine provides to sort of like go into the library, go into the family library. Yes. And, you know, here it is, you've got you've got these books that you've sort of, you know, you've taken out in terms of your own uh, you know, your own efficacy, your own sense of agency, right? Yeah. And yet, mm -hmm. you know, when you have the medicine, you get the opportunity to kind of put those books, lo like look at the whole shelf. Yeah. And, then you, and, you, and you get an opportunity to put some books back and take some other books out and kind of look at 
where you're at and from an epigenetic viewpoint i mean it sounded like you did that that's a that's you know you kind of like looked at yeah. the story and you said well wait a second i don't i don't need to buy into that story i'm 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 a different person yeah it's a different time i have different opportunities i mean gosh the impact of sexism is still real mm -hmm. in particular in the world of research mm -hmm. um and not just sexism but mm -hmm. other isms too and so but not to the extent that it was mm -hmm. you know um in the 40s and the that's, 50s that's that's beautiful yeah well i i was talking with someone yesterday and i was saying you know i grew up in the 60s and 70s and i thought I really thought that ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, was ratified. So I've been acting out all these years just, you know, well, of course women are equal. As a matter of fact, I think that they're probably superior, you know, because they give birth. They're 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 the they're the focal point for creation. We were talking about the divine feminine and the mm. reemergence of the divine feminine and the need mm. for the divine feminine right now, certainly in the world. And it sounds like in some respect, you were really looking at that in terms of the love project. What is what is that about? And, you know, maybe we can unpack that a little mm -hmm. bit more, huh? Yeah, of course, I'd be happy to. Yeah. So I am really interested in, I guess, starting a conversation about love. I was talking to Bill Richards about mm -hmm. this study um, before we started the survey construction, he and one of the things that he said that really struck me, he said, you know, one of the challenges with something like the study of love is similar to the study of God or spirituality. It's like really hard to define. It's political. It's their historical, you know, influences. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, if we look at what Bill Richards has done, mm -hmm. It's been remarkable. Amazing. And so I was so inspired by him. I'm like, okay, well, if we have to start somewhere, where do we start? And so we started with asking people to describe profound experiences of love under the effect of a psychedelic. Mm -hmm. What did it involve? Did it involve an experience of self-love, of love towards someone else, mm -hmm. a feeling other people's love, including generations past, um, did you have an experience of being love or was it love for the shaman or for the guide? Hmm. And then we also asked them to describe the experience of love in terms of like how it felt, how it felt in their body, how it felt with their senses, how it, uh, what psychological characteristics would they attribute to the experience mm -hmm. so that we could um, begin with defining, mm -hmm. you know, what do people consider to be love and how do they describe it in terms of psychological characteristics, physical characteristics, mm -hmm. sensory characteristics? Mm -hmm. And then um, we ask questions like, how did those experiences of love change you or change mm -hmm. your life, change your relationships? And so then we asked a whole bunch of questions about that. Uh, the survey is ongoing, actually. Uh, we're going to we're going to keep collecting data. And then finally, we asked about um, the role of love. Mm -hmm. in the relationships, whether it's in the group setting, where mm -hmm. it's a psychedelic experience happening in a group setting, or with a with a friend or guide, or with a therapist. Mm -hmm. And and then what I can't one of the questions that I'm really excited about that I'm going to be presenting, you know, as part of my talk, is what people's thoughts are on the barriers mm -hmm. to talking about love as a healing technology. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I was the just, goal, 
Oh, uh, go ahead. Go, yeah. No, go, I was just, I was, what I was thinking about was I was thinking about the Japanese art of kin, uh, kintsugi. Kintsugi. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Is yeah. that right? And that's, and that's really taking that broken, all those broken pieces, you know, which might have happened sort of at childbirth or, or afterwards in some way because mommy and daddy didn't pick you up as often or reassure you. And then through that process of love, you know, that that art is using gold to take those broken pieces right. to go ahead and bring them back together again. I was, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a and have you seen the positive results out of that? Um, I think I, I think I interjected a little too early. So. No, that was good. We're, <laughs> we're, we're just putting the uh, putting the pre presentation together now. Yeah. Um, but uh, we have we're going to we're going to learn a lot mm. um, from the people who have taken the time to complete the survey and my hope is mm -hmm. that the psychedelic research community is going to be able to offer to the psychotherapy community mm -hmm. to the medical community um, pathways for significantly advancing how we provide care in those areas without psychedelics mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so if in the psychedelic research we show like listen love is a big deal it is worth defining it is worth understanding the mechanism of change then hopefully we can influence the evolution of um, psychotherapy and healthcare so that love mm -hmm. is a much more central theme mm -hmm. in care provision now I know we started out by talking about um, you know the the whole idea of uh, psychedelic assisted therapy provider. I mean I'm coming through the IPI program, the IPI Maps program as a psychedelic assisted therapy provider, and it's all one on one or two therapists on one. You know the whole idea of really helping an individual use the medicine for their own journey. But I truly believe that we really heal through community. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if mm -hmm. we can maybe unpack that a little bit to be seen, to be heard, to be recognized, to be affirmed for our brokenness and our story. And maybe perhaps you've got some perceptions or some ideas around yeah. that. Yeah, yeah I, I think that the medicalized model of therapy provision with psychedelics is going to create <clears throat> some um, some limitations in terms of <clears throat> the extent to which people will heal. And I, I'll give you another personal example that will illustrate it. Beautiful. And I'll talk about community-based models of healing. Mm -hmm. um, I was I was doing some personal work myself and um, uh, working with ayahuasca in Peru. Mm -hmm. And I was working on internalized patriarchy, you know, so, mm. uh, so internalized sexism. Mm -hmm. You know, the way I do it to myself now. Mm. And it was so fascinating because the medicine said to me, do you want to fully dismantle these processes of internalized sexism within you? And I said, absolutely, I do. I will do anything. And then um, I get the message, forgive your mother fully. And that's just the beginning. Forgive all mothers hmm. fully to the point where forgiveness is actually a moot point. Hmm. And it showed me how life givers have not been given the support that they need and have been, you know, systematically hurt so mm -hmm. that they are not in a position to be able to give their children what they need, want, and deserve, what the child needs, wants, and deserves, but also what the mom mm -hmm. needs, wants, and deserves, you know, because like that's- you know, It's a deficiency there. There, there yeah, yeah, How are you supposed to perform if you're hungry? Yeah. Well, and that's and then what happens is that if you look at if you look at the history of psychotherapy, 
the moms get blamed mm. explicitly or implicitly. And then their kids end up blaming them. And right. so it's like, it is the biggest tragedy, I think, mm -hmm. about um, the influence mm -hmm. of, of patriarchy, colonialism, mm -hmm. is that- The Freudian um, model, yeah. The Freudian model is that, yes, of course, it's really painful when your mom's not there for you. Mm -hmm. It's the biggest hurt of all. But why is she not there? Because mm -hmm. she's shackled mm -hmm. by these other systems, by these other forces. And so I feel like we need to blow that up mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and move outside of that, you know, medical model of psychiatry or psychotherapy that I was trained in, frankly, you know, <laughs> so uh, so that we can really see the big picture. And that requires social change. That requires social activism um so that we can um um heal from mm -hmm. centuries of mm -hmm. this kind of problem at, at least since our countries have been uh in existence so so sure. is that where the womb comes is that where the room or the community comes in yes really understanding the the container that really holds that's right the the crucible that really holds not only the child, but also holds the community in terms of coming together towards a common purpose. Yeah, you know? exactly. Because what would that mom needed? She would have needed community around her to support her, to support her kid. And so community is so, so important. That's why I'm so happy that in Colorado, um, the proposition that passed was not just for clinical use, you know, for people who would feel more comfortable getting service in those types of settings, mm -hmm. but also for personal use, because mm -hmm. there are so many people, including um, indigenous people, people of color, um, people from the LBGTQ community mm -hmm. who may not feel comfortable mm -hmm. going into a clinic, but who would rather be supported by by individuals in their own community and so just a couple uh, last week mm -hmm. i did a i did a talk a workshop for the noac society where they're doing a series of um mm -hmm. basically skill building for community members mm -hmm. to empower people to be able to help one another in this way and in fact there was an article that uh, came through a few months ago um, about, um, it's called community-based care. And they were talking about how in African countries, and well, Uganda, for example, mm -hmm. 47 psychiatrists serving a country of 48 million. So mm -hmm. less than one psychiatrist mm -hmm. for every million people. Mm -hmm. And what, what the article said was what they'd been doing, and I believe that they've been doing this for a much longer time, but that they've been approving ground for this model called community-based care where non-specialist providers or lightly trained lay people, so someone like your grandmother, mm -hmm. delivers brief mental health interventions mm -hmm. in informal settings like homes and parks. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of care has been widely accepted because it pays attention to cultural context. Mm -hmm. So these lightly trained lay people, including family members, right. meet patients or clients or people who are struggling where they are, both literally in terms of physical space, mm -hmm but also conceptually in terms of their beliefs about mental health, because not everyone sees mental health issues as medical brain-based problems. Mm -hmm. Many people see them as a normal reaction mm -hmm. to unreasonable conditions. And so right. I feel like, yes, it's gonna be important for us to look at the regulation of psychedelics, the medicalization of psychedelics, but equally important is there going to, is a need to look at community-based models of care so that we can be supported by those who um, from affinity groups who are part of affinity groups, right. you know, if that right. makes sense.
Well, it makes total sense. And, uh, you know, I really do believe that the, um, that the existential angst that we have is disconnection, right? That's the right. whole idea of, uh, you know, mental illness that I'm not connected, that somehow I'm different. And that's really in large part, um, you know, the thought process around why 12 steps groups work so well mm -hmm. in terms of helping individuals with addiction or, you know, looking at whether or not it's an eating addiction or, a, a, a you know, a, a substance use or a behavioral use uh, issue is, is that the real opportunity is connection to normalize, That's to right. re recognize, to see, to be heard, to be recognized, to have your story heard and yeah. to really be accepted. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't think that's new. I think that's mm -hmm. old wisdom, indigenous wisdom. That's right. Unfortunately, it hasn't been normalized within our culture, certainly in the Western model, where we're taught to be individuated rather than interconnected. You know? That's right. Yeah, we have a lot to learn mm -hmm. from our indigenous um, brothers and sisters and siblings mm -hmm. in our in our in our world. And I think that um, I believe really strongly that um, especially with the formalization of psychedelic assisted therapies, if you will, like we really, really need to be consulting um, uh, people from groups who have been doing this for a long, long time. Um, you know, I think there was a there was a strong movement towards group based psychedelic therapy, you know, in people. I think that there was maybe some marketing that people were focusing on the elements that you were just talking about, like, Oh, right. it's so important for healing, et cetera, et cetera. But I also remember hearing people talk about like, how are we going to scale this up? Let's do right. it in groups, right. you know, how can you make money? <laughs> right. And so I feel like um, anytime we're thinking about scaling things up, mm -hmm. then we're off the mark. Right. Right. And because like, even with the ketamine, you know, there's, you can get ketamine and like a, uh, um mm -hmm. online and mm -hmm. the train i just feel like the training is not mm -hmm. likely to be adequate that yeah. you know in order to be able to hold group spaces mm -hmm. you need to know yalom really really well mm -hmm. you need to have some really good training in systems theory um mm -hmm. uh, you need to understand um family processes right. really really well and um, so I'm hoping that the field is going to is going to act accordingly, you know, in terms of ensuring that the people who are delivering these services have the proper training. Otherwise, you know, doesn't matter if it's in a community, you can you can just like community healing can increase potential outcomes. Mm -hmm. It can also increase the potential for harm. Mm. Now we're going to um, like I, I can't believe our, our time is, is coming <laughs> close here and you know we've just started to unpack that so you've got these three sessions that you're going to be looking at eating disorder symptoms family matters and the love project right mm -hmm. That's okay right. and when are those uh when are those sessions going to happen uh i i know they're you know the event or the convention is from the 18th through the 24th and then we've got workshops and we've got a mm -hmm. whole bunch of things happening during the course of that so do you have your dates uh for that when, when are they i sure happen? do yeah so i'm going to be on the clinical trial stage um at 5 15 to talk mm -hmm. about uh eating symptoms in the context of mdma assisted therapy mm -hmm. about uh an hour later six o'clock i'm going to be on a panel specifically mm -hmm. looking at eating disorders mm -hmm. the next day on friday what? The what, 23rd the 23rd so we're so on the, the 22nd 
Yeah, twenty second clinical trial stage, five fifteen, and then as the first is the first uh, speaking engagement, and then the next day on the twenty third, Love Project is I'm on at four p.m. And I'm waiting to hear when the Family Matters uh, talk is going to happen. They're still finalizing the schedule, but I have a feeling it's going to be on the 22nd. Beautiful. So this is very exciting. Are you excited about this uh, convention? I am so excited about this convention. There's, I mean, I don't even... I'm excited about sharing my research, but I'm more excited about uh, being able to see what my colleagues have been up to. I'm going to be participating in one of the pre-conference workshops with Bill Richards, which I'm super excited about. Yeah, yeah, there's just so much, honestly. And I guess I just wanted to say a little shout out. I'm going to have uh, little poster cards for the Love Study Project, the survey study that I talked about all over the MAPS conference. And oh, so good. if any of these listeners see one of those posters to please grab one and consider filling it out if it feels aligned because we're gonna to continue to collect data um, uh-huh. uh, for some time. Good, well, I am so inspired uh, really uh, by the work that you're doing, especially around the Love Project. The whole idea and the whole opportunity to go ahead and normalize or to integrate the concept of love, which is really, you know, just being present, being able to hear someone, to be able mm-hmm. to hear their story and to be able to empathize with them and exchange without, you know, judgment, without, right. you know, without with, with without picking them apart. Isn't that a, yeah. wouldn't that be wonderful if we could just all accept each other for whatever our backgrounds are and you know mm-hmm. we don't have to agree but we can certainly you know fight for the right that that person has to tell their story so you know that's uh, that's that's so important so how do people get a hold of you uh adele and uh mm-hmm. you know what are they uh, if someone wants to reach out to you for one reason or another uh is there a website i know you've got you know, yes we touched, we touched yes. in with each other on through LinkedIn, through the conference, through the convention. But, uh, you know, just if they want to look at your research, they may not be able to go to the convention. What, how, how would they, how would they find out more? Um, so I have a website and it's Mm -hmm. www.dr and then my name. So dradalafrance.com and there they can find Mm -hmm. information on the studies, including the links to the love project. They can look at, Mm -hmm. um, talks and and uh, workshops that I'll be giving. I'm going to be doing a talk or a workshop open to the public on family matters and psychedelic therapy in the fall. Um, and so, yeah, that's probably the best uh, uh, entry point into my work for those people who are interested. Great. So that's DrAdeleLaFrance.com. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. beautiful. And of course, uh, I look forward to seeing you at the convention. I think they've got, uh, as I mentioned before, they're expecting 10,000 people. We've already got like 8,000 that have oh registered. I mean, it's at the Denver Convention Center. So, you know, it's 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 going to be it's going to be wild. And uh, Keith, I, think I hope I get I actually get to run into you. Uh, wouldn't that be Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, I, I I I'm the I'm the guy that'll be walking around with the beard and the bald head. So you know. I will keep an eye out for you, for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I'm looking forward to uh, your event, uh, your three uh, workshops, and Mm -hmm. uh, looking forward to learning more. Thank you. Thanks, Keith.
Thank you for listening to the Mindfulness Experience Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We have other exciting guests coming up in the next few weeks, so stay tuned. For more mindfulness tips and tricks, visit our website at workmindfulness.com. Thanks again for being a part of the Mindfulness Experience. This is Keith Fiveson.